0: Joshua, the first chapter, Joshua chapter 1. Joshua is the sixth book of the Bible, just following Deuteronomy. We're going to work on verses 1 through 9 here this morning. 1 through 9. Read with me. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' his assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all these people, and to the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. Just as I promised to Moses from the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you shall go. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before your text this morning here in the book of Joshua, and this passage uh, of great encouragement this day, we look, uh, we look not only... At the beginning of a new year, uh, but at the beginning of each and every Lord's Day and what you've done throughout redemptive history, Father. Your graciousness and your kindness and your goodness and your faithfulness uh, to bring to each consecutive generation leaders, men who would arise and do what you've called them to do, Father, uh, pulls at our hearts today uh, for our own responsibilities in this generation. Father, as we go through this passage, I just pray. I uh, sink deep into the hearts of your people through the work of the Holy Spirit this morning, this morning and this day, and all these things. In the name of our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. This passage in Joshua is kind of a foundational thought. If you'll turn back to the book of Ephesians, I'm going to remind you because one of the things you might be saying to yourself this morning is, didn't we uh, leave off last year in the book of Ephesians? Weren't we going through the book of Ephesians? And indeed we were. So we're going to. Kind of springboard off some of the other truths here in the book of Ephesians this morning, to build on this truth in the book of uh, Book of Joshua, Ephesians chapter two. As you turn there, and I'll just give you a little bit of review of where we're at in the book of Ephesians to this point. Uh, we had been in Ephesians basically since I've been here, right? We had two sermons in the book of Job, and I began in May, and for seven months we've been going through. The book of Ephesians, an absolutely great book. It uh, uh, it explains so much. The first three chapters uh, are the indicatives; uh, they indicate what God has done for us. Uh, the the final three verses or chapters four, five, and six are the imperatives. Uh, they're the imperatives that God gave us in the way to act now that we are His church. So we see that in chapter one and verses one through fourteen, we get to see God's salvation from. From God down to man, from God's perspective, that before the foundations of the world that he chose us in Jesus Christ to be adopted as sons into his kingdom to receive the covenant blessings of the people of God. And that's why we're going back to the Old Testament this morning to spend a little time there. And then we pick up in verses 15 through 23, that very special section, Paul's prayer that the Ephesians would receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And that spirit of wisdom, that the spirit work in the, in the person who is saved would turn us on to all the truths, would fill us full of the light of God's truth, right? So that we would know the hope to which we've been called, that we'd fully understand. And uh, if you remember in that passage, we talked about that light coming in and pushing out all the fear here. Because when we truly understand what God's done, we can push out the fear of this place, the anxiety of the world. We can see that we serve a sovereign God, that a sovereign God has chosen us in his son before the foundations of the world. And I don't know how long ago that was exactly. If you're a young earth guy like me, it's less than 8,000 years. But sometime before when God created everything that was created, he had made a covenant with his son and with the spirit to bring redemption to man. He knew men would sin. He knew I would be a sinner. And he didn't leave you two, you guys out either. He, he knew you would be sinners as well. So he sent his son some 2,000 years ago in history to die for our sins. And then his spirit to work in our hearts so that we could hear that word of truth. And when we look at it, we understand it from our perspective. One day God saved us. We look back and we see the beauty of Christ and the sovereignty of God. But when we understand it rightly, we see it was the sovereignty of God that brought all this to pass. Beautiful words, right? And then in chapter 2. Paul reminds those Ephesian believers that they were the ones dead in their sins. Dead, dead men can't do anything, that it was God that made us alive, that it was by grace we've been saved. Then we began to work on this section where we're at now in verses 11 down through 19. And we uh, just a couple weeks ago had a sermon, the first sermon from verse 20. And those are the passages that I want to bring into to your reminder this morning because that's where we left off. God is talking about, Paul, through Paul's writing, uh, this morning at the end of chapter 2 about the condition of the whole world being sin and that God only sees us as a circumcised or uncircumcised. He doesn't see race, creed, color, religion. He sees you as someone who is bathed in the blood of the cross and his son and circumcised in your heart or uncircumcised and unsaved. Uh, Paul goes on to tell us in this passage that's, that's where all the strife comes from in the world that we live is because men are not right with God, they can't be right with one another because there's a enmity between man and God. That's our sin. And that wall of hostility had to be brought down, and that's what Jesus did when he died for us. That's the gospel. That's the good news of what Jesus has done, and that we can be reconciled to God. And when we are reconciled to God, we are reconciled to our fellow man. If we love God, we can love one another. And that is the greatest commandment, to love the Lord thy God with all your Heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbors yourself. And then we get down to where he starts to work in the church at the last part of this passage. And I want to read verses 20 through, is it 20 through 23? I think I've got it wrong in my notes here. As we look at these and we read this last part of this scripture, that the church is, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's, that's really where my heart is this morning. I'm still in that. I can't get away from that. With Christ being the cornerstone, that foundation is so important. Uh, not only the foundation eternally uh, of the church that was built through the word of God. That's what the apostles and prophets delivered. But through the living, that's the written word of God. Then we have the living word of God. He's the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure... That is the structure of the church from the beginning of time until the end of time. And not only that church, but all the Old Testament saints that would believe, and all the New Testament saints, even down to the local body, the local expression of the church today. We are being built on the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus, the cornerstone, being joined together, each block, right, each one of us, into a holy temple to the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for the Spirit by God. This passage is so instructive. And that's what I want to springboard off of this morning, uh, because the Lord's just laid it on my heart that there's more here. It's instructive. It's about the foundation of the church, because you cannot build on anything without a good foundation. We use concrete today for a reason for foundations, because it makes a sure foundation for a structure. God calls us to use the Apostle and prospects and all of that being held in plumb. And true by the cornerstone, Lord Jesus Christ. All the rest of the foundation is therefore set on those things, set and measured against that cornerstone and the words, the, the written word of God that the apostles and the prophets delivered to us and the cornerstone, the living word of God, the, the testimony that he gave us in his life and through his work, uh, redemptive work on the cross. All of it is built and set on that foundation and it's so important and it's his leading and guiding in, in the building process that all the other stones you and me beloved and all the other churches throughout history in the church forever become the building that is the temple to the lord so it's got a corporate value but it also has an individual value because if you build your life on the apostles and the prophets with jesus being the christ being the cornerstone your foundation will be sure You'll be the one who built uh, his house on the rock, not on the sand. You know, you get that from the uh, Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. But it was here in this passage that the Lord's kind of burdened my heart to open this up and go out a little bit, maybe over the next couple weeks, maybe through the month of January until I get back, about the importance of the foundation of the church, expressly the importance of the foundation of the church here at Park Bible Baptist Church in this community of Pennsville, because the foundation is critical to the building, because if the foundation is sure and strong, set firmly on the written word of God and the living word of God, that's the apostles and prophets and Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, then our building, all our work will have meaning and will stand. Our work will not be in vain, as Paul says, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 58, there, and it gives that final admonition in that passage. Therefore, my beloved brother, be you steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is never in vain when it's done in the Lord, right? That's what we want all of our building and our work here at Park Bible Baptist Church to represent. That building, he also goes on in 1 Corinthians 3, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid in Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, uh, each one's work will become manifest. And these, just real, very quickly, he's talking about these uh, uh, separate terms, gold, silver, or wood, hay, and straw, uh, as in uh, precious materials and less precious materials. It's, it's kind of a, uh, the greater to the lesser here, uh, pattern of scripture. Verse 13, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it the day will disclose it. You know, when it comes to when things get difficult... What you've built your life on will be disclosed because it will be revealed, Paul says, by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So when you build on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, uh, when you do that individually, uh, you do that corporately as you come into this building, our church will stand. It will have a great impact and a great work not only inside this building but outside this building and in this community. Why is this so important? Because, beloved, the church is the only place. The church is the pillar and ground of truth in our culture. And it is the only eternally existent organization. There's no other organization that will withstand eternity. Only the church will remain whenever a thing is tested by fire. Only the church. Now, there's a lot of things that call themselves the church. But the point here is obviously that Paul is speaking about those who build specifically on the written word of God and the living word of God. This is true since Old Testament times. It's true of the church universal, as I said earlier, all over the world. And it's true true of the local expression of the church, our church, Park Bible Baptist Church. It must be founded on the sure foundation of the written word of God and the living word of God. And churches fail often because they will not commit to this foundation. It may take a while to erode because maybe all they did was give up the fact of what the Bible says about biblical sexuality. Maybe they gave up the fact of what it means in Genesis 1, 1 through 11 uh, of a six consecutive days of literal creation. Maybe they give up on some of the little things, thinking that it wouldn't have an impact on the big thing. But you can't give up on one thing, on the written Word of God or the living Word of God, that won't take down the whole thing because it is the foundation of the thing. Do you see that? It is imperative that we build on the infallible, inerrant, and all-sufficient Word of God. And when men stray from that foundation, churches will suffer. Churches will die and go out of existence. Families will suffer, communities in which they're placed will suffer, and so much more. But, beloved, when you look at a church and a church that builds on this foundation, churches that are flourishing, you will find a church standing on a sure foundation of the apostles and prophets. Not only that, but of strong men filled with the Spirit, filled with the truth of the apostles and prophets, the Spirit of God, the workings of Christ, leading and guiding that church, men in agreement with the Word and with one another, standing sure on the firm foundation of the written and living Word of God, Christ Jesus. That's the foundation of the church. Because the church's leadership is uniquely and biblically through men, The men that lead the church must stand on the men that wrote the word and the man that died for the church. And that's why we're in Joshua. Because there's something very specific taking place. In the book of Joshua, power is transferred from Moses to Joshua. Now this is what God has faithfully and providentially handed down throughout redemptive history. God has always worked through his people. Uh, Men and women alike, but certainly in the church age and through the Old Testament, through the patriarchal period and into today, uh, things have not changed. The headship and God has worked through faithful men from generation to generation to pass on the covenant promises from one generation to another to lead the covenant people, the church now, as we'd call it, from one generation to another by faithful men standing on the work of faithful men and standing on the faithful man, Jesus Christ. This is what this passage in Joshua is going to teach us. It is showing us God faithfully upholding the promise to make of Abraham a great nation and thusly guaranteeing all of the covenant blessings to the people of God by standing up men who would take responsibility to lead the people of God by the word of God for the glory of God. Our nation is desperately in need of those men today. I just have five short points I want to make this morning. See me smiling when I say that? Five short points. I promise it won't take long. God provides godly men for leadership of his people. God prepares godly men for leadership of his people. God protects godly men who will lead his people. God prospers godly men who will lead his people. And God purifies godly men. Provides, prepares, protects, prospers. And purifies. Look at it with me here in this passage. After the death of Moses. This explains so much about why the way God works through uh, leadership in his churches and leadership um, uh, of the continuation of the promises uh, of the covenant. Let me get just a drink before we go further. Look at the passage there in Joshua, though. The book, book of Joshua begins with the death of Moses. You might think that that would set the tenor. For the whole book, it might kind of cast a shadow on things, but it really doesn't. What it tells us, I believe, this morning, uh, with my whole heart, is that God is faithful that when one man's time is done, uh, another man will rise up to continue to lead the people on. Throughout redemptive history, this has been, and throughout scriptural uh, writings, this has been the way that God has used uh, down throughout redemptive history. Uh, to bring the people of God into the faithfulness of God. The book of Joshua then begins with Moses' death. And as you know, Moses' story begins at the end of Joseph's life, so it's at the end of the book of Genesis. Uh, so it's passed from Abraham and through his sons uh, to Joseph. We get the people in in Egypt. Uh, they're there in exile. And it's passed to Moses in the first part of the book of Exodus. Uh, in fact, chapter 2, and we're going to spend a little bit of time in in Exodus chapter 2, as we get rolling here this morning, so you might just turn over there, Exodus chapter 2, and I'll just give you a little bit of an overview of, of Moses' life. Many of us know who Moses is. Uh, there you see it, the birth of Moses. Now a man from the house of Levi went, verse 1, chapter 2, and took his wife, a Levite woman, the woman conceived and bore a son. And you guys know the story. Uh, it's, a, it's a time when Pharaoh had made a decree to have all the Hebrew babies killed. Uh, just as they were being born he asked for the 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 mothers that were helping birth the children to to at that time kill the Hebrew boys the little boys all the boys because he he knew that the leadership would come through the men and he knew to stifle and to uh, stop this nation that he would have to kill the young men of the nation and that's why he wanted these men killed but Moses's mom uh, had uh, a special work in her heart right this doesn't work without her work and uh, this is kind of a preview of what we'll be talking about the next few weeks, and how important women are to to men, and men are to women, as Paul will put it in First Corinthians 11. M- Moses' mom did exactly what God had called her to do. The hardest thing I think a mom would have to do, she made a little boat out of the out of the reeds, and she put pitch on it, and she put Moses because she loved him so much, she didn't want to see him killed. She put him there in the in the river. Uh, and floated him. He makes a little basket boat for him out of the reeds and sends him sailing there on the Nile. But Moses would be found by God's providence and taken as a son of Pharaoh. He grew to be a man of 40 years of age and then would flee to Egypt when he killed another Egyptian uh, for persecuting one of his Hebrew brothers. He fled out into the wilderness and like many young men in the wilderness, they meet a woman. They get married and they settle down, right? Right. Moses met Jethro, his father-in-law. There and he married his wife. Uh, I believe her name is Zipporah. I didn't write that down, but I think my memory is good enough. And had two sons. But this is where God appears to Moses. It's kind of rushed here. You see it in chapter 3 of the book of Exodus. You see the burning bush story. God appeared to Moses there in the wilderness, tending the flock of his father-in-law at the burning bush in Exodus 3, and called Moses, now 80 years old, so I'm just going to remind you that if you think you're too old this morning, you're not too old. Moses was called at 80 years old, um, called called him back to Egypt to be the man who would lead the people of Israel out of slavery and into the promised land that God had promised even to the patriarch Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. And of course, you remember that God judged Egypt and Pharaoh with 10 great plagues during Moses' tenure, and Pharaoh would let the people go, and as they went into the wilderness, Pharaoh kind of reneged and went after them, and God parted the Red Sea, and Moses led the people across on the dried land. And three new moons later, they show up at Mount Sinai, where God gave Moses all the law. The people rebelled, and God led them to wander in the desert. For 40 years, Moses would wander with them in the wilderness until that generation of men who were unfaithful died, and God would finally take them into the promised land to where we are. In the book of Joshua, chapter 1. But I want you to know uh, Moses, as he went up on the Mount Nebo to the top of Sigal, you see this here in chapter 34, verse 1, Exodus 34, verse 1. Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Sigal, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead, as far as Dan and Naphtali, showed him all the promised land as he looked out, but he would not go into that land. Verse four, And the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, that I would give to your offspring. I will let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab. It says, verse eight, according to the word of the Lord, and they buried him there. Moses was a great man of the Bible. But he didn't start out that way, beloved. He was just like you and me. He was tempestuous, I think, and uh, a bit reluctant to do what God had called him to do. In Exodus 3, when God had called him there at the burning bush, Moses would say to God uh, all types of excuses to try to get out of what God was calling him to do. Now, remember, he's 80 years old. I'm sure that one of those excuses would be of his age. But he said there in verse 11, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel? Israel out of Egypt. I can't do it. He said, if I come to the people and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to ask them, what is his name? What am I going to tell them? I don't know. I'm an unlearned man. I'm not good with speech, he would go on to say. But the Lord assured Moses of his promises by giving him signs and wonders to accomplish. And God assured Moses that the people would follow him and that when he would speak to Pharaoh, that Pharaoh would hear him and everything would come to pass just as the Lord had promised, and the Israelites would indeed be delivered from bondage and to the promised land. But still, Moses in Exodus 4:10 said, "Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. But I'm a man slow of speech and unable in tongue." <laughs> he sounds just like one of us. Moses wasn't chosen because he was great, though, beloved. Moses became great because he was chosen. Moses wasn't great because or Moses wasn't chosen because he was great. Moses became great because God chose him and did His work for him and through him. So we see here, God chooses and God prepares good men. God puts the good men before us. And God leads the church with good men. And we see that as we begin here in verse 1. The servant of the Lord. Moses here is called the servant of the Lord. Because he learned obedience. Because he didn't keep making excuses. He eventually did what God had called him to do. And you can too. I'm telling you that you men here at Park Bible Baptist Church and the men listening to my voice and the men that we need here at this church. God can use each one of you. He can make you what he needs you to be. He can change you into exactly what he's calling you to do. He can use you in your situation, in your family situation, and in your community's situation. God used Moses in spite of all of his faults, in spite of his inabilities to be fearless, in spite of his uh, inabilities to be able to, to think small. He saw the big picture. In spite of his inability to speak truth to power, he gave him the ability to trick power. In spite of his inabilities to stand and see the deliverance of the people, he stood and saw the deliverance of the God's people. God used Moses in a mighty way, and if you go back to Exodus, uh, I think it says in verse uh, Exodus thirty-four, just before this passage in Joshua. Moses started out in a mean way, verse ten, but his ending statute was much different. Verse ten says, "And there was none arisen, a pro- uh, and there is not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses." whom the Lord knew face to face. It said Moses, verse 7, died at 120 years old. His eyes were undimmed, his vigor unabated, and the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days because of the leader that God had made him into be. So God not only provides good men, but he prepares good men. And that's what we're going to see as power is transferred from Moses to Joshua is God preparing these men. There have been countless good men that have gone before us, leaving what we have seen and and enjoy today, Moses included. We are not disconnected from this story this morning because since God is faithful to raise up men in each generation to lead and guide his people, Moses must be included in us. There's been countless good men of no name that have gone before us and leaving us what we have today. But what we have today will not stay and remain if we don't steward it well on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles and the cornerstone Jesus Christ. So what we see is that God prepares Good men, Exodus 34.9, we'll see what God had prepared with Joshua. Uh, the people had knew that Moses was going to die because God had told him and Moses had not hidden this from the people because he had struck the rock at Meribah twice. God said you won't go into the promised land that you will die not having set foot on it. So another man was stood up at that time. He was one of the spies along with Caleb that went into the land, to spy out the land. His name was Joshua. We first see here in verse 9 uh, what God had done to prepare Joshua. And it is also in the book of Exodus as God worked with Moses to mentor Joshua along. We see that pattern uh, fulfilled in Scripture and even in the New Testament for the leadership of the New Testament church. Verse 9, and Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom because Moses had mentored him and God was doing a work in him. God prepares men for this work. God prepares men and stands them up to lead when he brings other men that have led well down. And Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom for Moses had laid his hands on him. So that the people of Israel obeyed him and did not, and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. So God prepares men. Joshua had been brought along by his mentor Moses. He had been brought along also by the people's prayers and the people's willingness to follow him. That this man would be the man to carry out the first man's work and bring the people into the promised land is what the scriptures is going to tell us. That he would have success all depended upon the man standing and taking up responsibility that God had given him. Men do not miss this truth. Read it there. Let's read it in verses two of chapter one. Let's listen to what God says to Joshua this morning, and let's hear it in our own ears, and let's do, as I've named this sermon this morning, arise to the challenge, arise to God's calling. See it there in verse two, Joshua, chapter one, verse two. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now that would have been a time for great mourning as we read, and it was. But it was also a great time for new beginnings as we have. Now, therefore, Joshua, arise, take on the responsibility, do all that you've been called to do. Look at the words, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into this land that I'm giving them to the people of Israel. In other words, Joshua, it is your responsibility. Take up that responsibility, the one that Moses had prepared you for, the one that I have called you to and prepared you for. Take that responsibility and lead this people. Don't miss this truth when you're considering your life and family, men, and your church and your community. Whenever you take up the godly responsibility that you've been given, Scripture sets forth for you, you will receive the authority that God has intended for you to have. Let me say that again. When men take up the responsibility that Scripture sets forth for them to have, whether it be of their own person, in their own family, or in the church, or in the community, the authority that God intended for you to have flows to you. But that's not all. You will be blessed because this is in this obedience to God. And further, you will deliver people and people will be blessed under your charge to the promised land. And this is just needless confusion in our land. I I read verses 3 and 4. Every place is the promise. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I've given to you. This is God speaking directly to Joseph, just as I promised to your mentor Moses, just as he led well, you'll lead well, just as he had success, you'll have success, and just as he uh, led the people humbly, right, with courage and conviction, you will lead the people humbly with courage and conviction from this wilderness in this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea towards the going down of the sun shall be your territory. That is the promise. When men take up their responsibility, they lead others to that promise, to the covenant promises of God. And this is where so much confusion comes in in our world, beloved. There's so much needless suffering in our world today. Liz and I are 20-plus-year foster parents, adoptees parents. We've seen the system. We've worked through it. I see so much suffering that doesn't need to be because of the lies that are told by Satan in our society today. And I know that when good men and good women stand against us and good churches come together, that this suffering is washed away. Suffering at the hands of individuals who willingly suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. Romans 1. There are countless young men who were told that it's okay to be gay and now they live a life buried under a load of shame and guilt. Because some homosexual relationships were made with predator men who with reprobate minds sought them out to tell them the lie to Catch them in that trap of, of the lie of homosexuality. How many of our people, how many people do we know, and how many people do we lament in our country today that have been lost lives to addiction? And the numbers are mounting of 15-year-old little girls who have been psychologically diagnosed as transgender or with gender dysphoria. And as a result now, they're removing double mastectomy, their breasts, perfectly healthy breasts and having hysterectomies making them forever sterile and they endure a lifelong trial of tremendous psychological pain because of these lies there's lawlessness in our streets, looting, stealing, rioting, we've seen all that the last couple of years injustices that go uh, injustices that continue to go unpunished our schools don't even start down that road why this is the one refrain i hear over and over as a pastor i see it when i talk to pastor friends we we do it i'm get preparing for this missions conference i know it why why do these things happen and the answer is simple why does this happen why doesn't someone stand up and why doesn't someone do something about it have you heard that have you ever heard those things before why 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 good question isn't it i've got one simple little answer for you here's your answer men A lack of good men who will rise to defeat this evil, to meet this challenge of their generation. A lack of good men trained in truth who love what is right more than they love their own life itself. Sir Edmund Burke said, a philosopher, I know you know who he is. He was an Irishman who was an advocate for the newfound Western world and democracy. He said this, all it takes for evil to thrive is for good men to do nothing. I think that's true. I think it's exactly what Genesis 3 teaches in the Garden of Eden. It's every man's greatest sin. It's every man who's honest to himself. Here's greatest sin is that when he should have stood up, he stood down because he was afraid. But we have God's protection, then. Verse 5, let's read it. Joshua. These are precious promises. God is speaking directly to Joshua. He's saying, stand and you're going to deliver these people. Arise, men, arise. Joshua, arise. Go, therefore, lead these people into the promised land. Verse 5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Because just as I was with the men who had gone before you, just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will not leave you and I will not forsake you. Beloved, that is the promise. Men, listen to me. That is the promise of a lifetime. God will never leave us and never forsake us when we stand for the truth, when we take up responsibility that is ours, that authority flows to us and we push away the dark and the evil of this world and those, we alleviate people's suffering and you have the ability in your own life, in your own family, in your own sphere of influence to lead people to the promised land of Jesus Christ. Just stand, just arise, just listen, just believe the promises of God. I don't know what else you've got. If you've got something better, come on up to the pulpit. I want to hear what you're standing on this morning because I have nothing better to give you than the promises of Jesus Christ. Nothing better. They're foundational. You must understand that God has a plan in this world. It's not complicated. He will save those who believe in Christ and those who refuse will spend eternity being judged in a place called hell. We can fight for what is wrong with all of our hearts and minds and soul and strength. His promise is that he will deliver you and will bestow upon you the sure promises of the covenant to make you fruitful, to multiply you, to fill and subdue the earth and have dominion over it. It's there there for the taking. It's here at this level, I believe, that this will push away the dark in our lives and our families' lives not only in our own lives but i know it will push the dark for me and my family in this church in this community in the state south jersey beloved if we would be men who believe god what are we then to do we need men who will love and protect women and children that god gave us not dress like them and compete in their sports We need men who will stand for truth in the face of an evil generation. We need men who will stand and not allow men with these perversions to have their way and be willing to charge that wall if necessary to put down that evil. We need men who will commit to what is right, will have no excuse, believe. Good men who have gone before us, look at their lives, what they've shown us, the example that they've set, the courage that they've stood on, And standing on those same promises, beloved men, we must stand. We mean men like this to be the foundation of this church. Beloved, let me tell you this this morning. If you say you're a Christian, you're this man, or you're not Christian. God provides good men. God prepares good men. God protects good men. And he prospers good men. I've got to slow down because we're running way out of time. But let me just finish, just a few more minutes, if you'll be patient with me. Be strong and courageous, verse 6 says. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and be very courageous, being careful to do all according to the law. Oh, look what comes back, our foundation. That Moses, my servant, has commanded you, don't turn from it. Don't turn from it from the right or to the left that you may have what? Good success. It's the foundation. Of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, that will prosper you, that will give you good success. And finally, the fifth P that I will have in my alliteration party this morning is it will purify you. It will first make you who God needs you to be. You see, there's three good traits of any leader three good traits. You can't have a good leader without all three. If you take away one, they fail. Humility first, conviction, and courage. Humility, conviction, and courage. And that's what we say as we see the end of this passage. The book of the law cannot depart from your mouth, but you shall, verse 8, meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all according to what is written in it. For it will make your way prosperous, and you will have good success. It repeats these words for a reason because it's in that word. It's in that living word, beloved. And don't let me get out of here this morning without telling you that it is first and foremost in the living word of Jesus Christ. (laughs) I would be remiss if I didn't give you Jesus this morning. So one more passage of scripture, I promise. Ephesians chapter 4. This is why the foundation is so important. It all goes awry if this foundation is improper. We're going to begin in verse 11. And this is the compliment to Ephesians 2.20. When we get to Ephesians 4.11, we'll spend more time here, but we're just going to breeze by it this morning because it's about Jesus. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles and prophets. Why did he give them? Because there's one that built the foundation of the written word of God. You see that? And he gave evangelists and shepherds and teachers because they teach the foundation of the apostles and prophets of the written word of God. Why did he give those things, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry? To equip men like Moses. To equip men like Joshua. To equip everybody in the church for the work of the ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God to be a mature, to mature to the measure and the stature, we don't mature just in our time and place, but it's a it's a greater measure that we're looking at. It's the cornerstone to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ our Lord, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather speaking truthfully and in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head in Jesus Christ. He is the one who died, he is the fountain of the foundation, the cornerstone, the one God prepared before the foundations of the world to meet a Roman cross 2,000 years ago so that you can be the man or the woman or the church member or the mother or the father or the sister or the brother that God called you to be. All right? Next week we're going to go further with your patience. Gracious Heavenly Father, build in your people this day the truth of this foundation and its importance. God, that we've seen church after church, family after family, time and time again, we've seen the foundations crumble and crack under the burning fire of this culture. My prayer is that you're working in men's hearts even today that you'll build a foundation here that is so secure and that your word and your work and your glory will go everywhere that you've intended it to go. Create in us, as David said, a clean heart, O Lord. You've provided, you prepare, you protect us, you prosper us, and you've purified us in your son, Jesus. It's in his name this day that we pray. Amen. If I can have the men that are going to help me with the table...